Hey everyone, Eric Renier here, and welcome to the 57th episode of the RIT Podcast. We're only a few weeks away from Parliament returning and the Conservatives naming their next leader. It's going to be an important fall session for Justin Trudeau's Liberals, so I wanted to check in with someone who knows a thing or two about these things. Dan Arnold is Chief Strategy Officer at Polera. Before that, he worked as Director of Research and Advertising in the Prime Minister's Office, and he's polled for the Trudeau Liberals in each of the past three elections. Hey Dan, welcome back to the podcast. Always happy to uh, to join you on the Red Eric. Um, so I, I want to start with just um, a broader view about where things stand right now, because you know it is uh, now seven years that the government has been in power, which is a long time for any government. It's been a pretty tumultuous couple of years. It just does seem that ever since Donald Trump was elected, it's been one crisis after another. Uh, the latest being the pandemic, that seems to be now receding, at least in terms of the government's kind of emergency approach to it. It's obviously still a problem they have to handle. But um, what is the kind of climate that the liberals are in, in terms of the public opinion, how do people see the government, but also just what the mood is of the country uh, with a government that's been in power for seven years? Yeah, and I think, I mean, what I would say here, and this is probably going to sound uh, sacrilegious on this podcast, is I would not pay a lot of attention to the horse race polls at, uh, at this stage in the game, uh, especially when the conservatives are in a bit of this nebulous uh, situation where we like we know who the next leader is going to be, but the public may not necessarily be aware of that and they may not have formed an opinion of the new leader. And if you ask them a survey with Candace Bergen's name on it, unless you are a political junkie or a big Murphy Brown fan, that name's not going to mean anything to you. Um, and then if you don't include a leader name, are you asking about Polyev? Are you not asking about Polyev? So I, I would just kind of throw the horse race stuff out and I probably pay more attention to questions about how people feel about the prime minister, how they feel about the government and you know some of those fundamentals that you mentioned right there, which I think are very much uh, uh, realities this government has to contend with. Um, you know, uh, voters uh, like Vulcans have that seven year itch and you start to get that mood for a change that comes up uh, at this stage in the life of any government. I think that is a truism in politics that uh, has always existed and something this government certainly has to contend with, just like every other government uh, who is lucky enough to make it this far. Um, and I think I think the big challenge they're facing right now, I mean, you've mentioned some of the challenges they faced in the past with Trump and COVID. The big challenge right now is clearly inflation, right? And I think, uh, you know, Polaire, we just, we just actually put out a poll this week that uh, showed that only one in six Canadians feel that their wages are keeping up with inflation. Uh, there's a lot of anxiety about that out there right now. And I think, you know, uh, inflation and economic uncertainty that comes with it is something that is always a difficult situation for any government. And I think, you know, this is a challenge that's a little bit different than most past ones the government has faced. And, you know, they've definitely got to, to, to handle this issue well, or else that could be a, another big, uh, a big problem for them heading into the fall, I think. You said, uh, you know, lucky to be uh, in power for seven years. Uh, you know, there's been a lot of discussion about whether a fourth election is something that Trudeau can win, that because uh, no one has done it since I think Wilfrid Laurier was the last one to, uh, the prime minister to win four consecutive elections. Uh, uh, something that I've thought about is that, you know, when you're thinking about someone like Laurier, and obviously someone, you know, we think about Laurier a lot, uh, you know, a four, four consecutive elections means... You know, 16 years, right? But this has been a minority scenario. Do you think? Do you think that the amount of time matters more than the amount of time people have voted? Yeah, it's it's hard to say. I mean, we don't we just don't have a big enough you know data set to maybe do the uh, the full regression analysis on that. Um, you know, I think it's something that is is a feel, as if everything in politics. Like, if you feel like I'm just tired of this government, and that probably is more a product of time than the number of times you have voted in an election campaign. Um, 
that said, though, it does feel like we all aged 20 years during COVID. So, so and, and they saw the prime minister out there every day, right, for at least a year. So, I mean, that was a lot of exposure and that that builds up and takes its toll as well, too. Um, so, yeah, I think I think that time for a change sentiment um, is something the government's going to have to contend with. Um, you know, that said, I think, you know, we talk about records of prime ministers and premiers running for a fourth election, um, you know, records of prime ministers and premiers who pass the baton off to somebody else and they run for a fourth election. Also not a great track record in that situation. So, you know, I think it's uh, it's not a given that the liberals would be in better hands with anybody else going into uh, the next election campaign. And, uh, you know, I think that's something all the pundits will obviously chatter about. And I heard you talking about it on your, your podcast last week as well, too. Um, you know, but I think, uh, you know, that's something certainly that, um, you know, the prime minister himself is going to have to give some thought to in terms of, you know, who is that best person to kind of take the party into the next campaign? Well, what would be the considerations there? So if, uh, you know, there's obviously the personal ones, and that's just a decision that is made at the personal level, whether you would just want to do it for the next four years. But if he was looking at the situation, uh, what would be what he would take into account? You know, what kind of numbers would, uh, you know, your uh, successor would be providing him uh, that would inform the kind of decision about whether he is helping or hurting the party? Yeah, I mean, and there's obviously a lot of different um, polling questions you can ask to the, these ends. But I think the, the, the ultimate questions you need to answer is, uh, you know, who is going to motivate and excite uh, liberal voters to actually turn out in an election campaign when they are you know, going for a fourth mandate? Uh, who is somebody who can um, excite Canadians, more broadly speaking? Uh, and connect with voters like who has that actual ability to to connect with real people and and show that they understand what they're going through in, in a tough challenging economic situation uh, and who can go toe-to-toe with with Poliev in an, an election campaign and actually you know stand up to him in a debate and on the campaign trail and has that uh, you know that spark to uh, take on what is a, a very formidable uh, opponent so I think you know I, I think the Prime Minister has shown he can do all those things in past election campaigns so I think he has those skills and I think with somebody else it's a bit of a maybe right question there you don't know if they have those skills or not so I think those are all definitely considerations uh, that will, uh, you know, go into um, a decision whenever that uh, decision happens. Does the deal with the NDP change any of the thinking for the next couple of years for the government? If they were just in a minority, just working on a case-by-case basis, does does it change the way that they have to approach the NDP, for one? Because if it was more of a brinksmanship kind of thing, um, that relationship is a bit more contentious. But here, there is almost a bit of a... The New Democrats want to be seen that they're still part of this, right? That they're, they're, they still have some sway. And it feels like a delicate balancing act for uh, the Liberal government to keep themselves in power, keep the NDP happy enough, but not too happy that, you know, they get the benefit. Yeah, I, I think like we all recognize that that deal was not signed in blood and, uh, you know, realities of the day will impact it in the long run. Though I think at the same time, you know, from an NDP perspective, like if the the liberals are too high in the polls you don't want to cause an election if they're doing too bad and it looks like the conservatives will win you don't necessarily want that situation either because then you lose your influence um so you know what is that sweet spot that would actually cause the ndp to want to back out i don't know um i don't think there's really any interest on the liberal side of of cutting that deal short i think uh you know 
we talked off the top about you know it's been it's been trump and then it's been COVID and one crisis after another and i do feel like you know the government looked at this third mandate and looks at this third mandate as an opportunity to actually get some of these things done that they've really been itching to get done or that they've laid a lot of the groundwork to get done um and you know finally get those well water advisories lifted get some of these environmental measures get the trees planted get the emissions levels going down roll out some of the housing uh, measures that were talked about in the last campaign and i think they would you know appreciate having that stability for a couple of years to actually push some of these things out the door and actually um you know get all the change that has been um starting to happen uh, actually seen more broadly by the public because i think if it's i think electorally too like if the public actually sees results and sees things happening and progressives see that the government has sort of fulfilled a lot of those broad promises big ambitious things that they've been talking about and actually sees results there i think that certainly serves the liberals well electorally in the next uh, election campaign for sure it, it undercuts a bit of that all talk um narrative that the ndp was pushing out last campaign that i think probably did have a lot of traction and, and has some traction with those progressive voters um so i think you know having three more years hopefully to uh get results on all these issues would be something that um you know the government would certainly value and uh you know would hope to uh, to see happen I know it's been a while since the the agreement has been signed, so you know there's already heard, we've already heard everybody's opinions about it. But I am curious about yours um, in terms of the discussion that took place when the agreement was signed. Um, you know, in the chattering classes about whether the Liberals were abandoning the center. Um, from your perspective, is there more to gain by delivering on what could be seen as you know NDP priorities rather than trying to occupy the center more fully? Yeah, I, I'm a I'm a fan of the agreement just because I think uh, again it gives that stability, you know, stability in quotation marks uh, for those listing. Um, uh, but at least at least it raises the threshold for causing an election campaign. It makes an election less likely, I think, at the very least. Uh, and again, I think you know the government their pathway to victory, you know, putting right or left aside, their pathway to getting another mandate is going to be seen as like actually having gotten things done for people that matter and impact their lives. And I think. You're able to do that if you have a bit more runway and a bit more time uh, at your disposal to to get those things done. And I think if they can actually go to the electorate next campaign and actually show some tangible outcomes, that is the pathway to getting another another government, uh, another mandate. And I think the agreement makes that more likely. Um, and I mean, you know, right or left, uh, I think there's probably still more votes on that kind of like progressive liberal NDP overlap than on that kind of liberal conservative overlap. But at the same time, it's not like centrist voters hate uh, dental care with a fiery passion or anything like that. There are going to be much broader issues that the government is going to have to contend with. And, you know, nothing in this agreement precludes the government from how they they deal with other financial issues or other economic issues or other issues that could be um, you know, relevant to some of those liberal conservative overlap voters there. So, um, you know, I think in terms of uh, the, the policy conditions that are on the deal. Uh, it seems like stuff that would be broadly popular with Canadians as a whole. And, um, you know, certainly with progressives. And I think, you know, the uh, the big mushy part of the voter pool out there for liberals is still largely on that kind of progressive side of the, uh, the flank there. So I think that's a group you want to make sure uh, they, they see results. And um, Again, that they see you see the ball water advisories lifted, they see trees being planted, they see these things that matter to them uh, actually happening, and uh, you know hopefully gives the government runway to do that and to uh, 
to also deal with the big issues like inflation, right? Like if, you, if you're not worried about an election campaign, you can probably deal with these bigger issues better than you can if you have to survive vote to vote uh, in the House of Commons. So if it gives them uh, more runway to do um, some of the big things that matter to all Canadians uh, across the political spectrum, I think it's a good, it's a good deal for, um, for the government. Bad deal for you because that's one less election campaign to cover. But uh, for those of us who are tired of election campaigns, probably a good thing. Yeah, no, no, we don't like this. It should, it should be in the States. You have an election every two years. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure that's a better solution. Anyway, um, we'll move on to the Conservatives because so this is the third uh, leadership race we've had in a little while. And so since you first you know, went to work with the PMO, this is the third one that you've been seeing from that perspective. And I know that we haven't heard a lot of discussion from liberals about what's happening in the Conservative leadership race. They're kind of leaving it. Uh, to uh, kind of germinate on its own. But, you know, we heard stories about when it was uh, 2017, you know, what liberal insiders or staffers were hoping who would win, that, you know, Bernier would be easy to beat or whatever it was. Um, So now you've, you know, you've got a, a larger set of, you know, data set of conservative leadership races. How do you find this one differs from the other two and and particularly from the perspective of the liberals? Well, at least you're getting conservative leadership races every two years yeah. to cover. So uh, that, that's the positive there. Um, yeah, no, it's, it's an interesting race to watch. Um, you know, very high profile candidates, uh, at least at the start of the campaign, who all kind of tacked differently in terms of their strategies and message. So, you know, as an outsider, I find that, you know, just someone who likes politics, very interesting to watch and sort of see how that um, unfolds. Um, look, I mean, I think the the membership numbers are, are staggering and, and incredibly impressive in terms of the number of people that uh, have signed up. And I think it, it really does speak to Paul Yev's ability to really connect with the psyche of the conservative base. Um, and I think that's certainly to, to his credit and that you know, makes him a very formidable uh, opponent uh, in the next election campaign. Um, you know, he's proven now in uh, a bit more of a, a test laboratory that leadership races are, that he uh, you know, has the ability to connect with people and to get his message out as an effective communicator and to kind of tap into the anxieties of, uh, of, of voters. Now, it's going to be a different subset of voters, obviously, in a general election. But, you know, I think his, his raw skills are, are very impressive. And I've definitely taken that home as a, uh, a key take home from this campaign, whereas, you know, the last leadership race... Um, you know, Peter McKay kind of started as the front runner, really kind of floundered through that race uh, and didn't run a great campaign. And you know, we saw the result of it. Uh, yeah, lesson from the conservative leadership races. I mean, I mean, look what hap- what's likely going to happen to Sheree this time, what happened to McKay last time, what happened to the Lisa Rates of the world. And, uh, you know, Aaron O'Toole back when he ran as a progressive in 2017 in the leadership race. Uh, I mean, they were all kind of left by the side of the road there. And I think, I mean, I look at this, party and it seems like it's very it's hard to see a scenario where a red tory comes in and becomes the next leader of this party because the base just seems to be very much still in that reform uh side of the the tent post-merger even even i mean even harper beats stronic and clement right so i think um it, it certainly looks to me like you know that that party is still being very much uh pulled by its base which is still very much the uh the reform base from uh kind of the the pre-merger entities uh there if, if you were, uh, you know, you had the budget and you had the mandate from the party, uh, what would you be testing right now? What would you be seeing in public opinion about this race? Look, I mean, I think at this point you'd be testing about uh, Polyev because I think the race is over uh, for all intents and purposes. So I think, um, 
you know, uh, at this stage in the game, you know, the important thing from a liberal perspective is to understand, you know, when you take Polyev from that kind of like conservative base and put him in front of the broader electorate, uh, how do they feel about him? Uh, what do they what what do they like? What do they not like about him just as a person, just as a politician? You know, what uh, from his tone, from his style, what rubs them the right way, what rubs them the wrong way? Um, and just kind of get a sense of, uh, you know, how he um, plays with um, with the broader electorate and what they're going to think about him once they start getting a bit more exposure to him uh, in the fall. What do you think are, um, you know, some of his, what does he bring to the Conservatives that the Liberals should be concerned about that they might not have been as concerned about with Aaron O'Toole or Andrew Shear? Yeah, like I think, like Shear and O'Toole, I think when the, before the election campaign started, we're, we're pretty much non-entities, I think it would be safe to say, in the eyes of Canadians as a whole. And, and part of that was just because there was things like COVID going on that made it hard for, you know, O'Toole to get traction. But, um, you know, I think it's fair to say that the Liberals could largely just ignore Sheer and O'Toole for all intents and purposes until you got into an election campaign. And obviously, when you got into an election campaign, we had to, you know, highlight the social conservative side of Sheer and the guns positions of O'Toole, and you had to like, you know, take your shots there. But um, yeah, I think before the election campaign, there wasn't that um, need because they were afterthoughts in the eyes of Canadians. I have a hard time believing that Pierre Polyev is going to be an afterthought. Like he just seems like such a strong personality the media is going to be interested in him he's proven that he can get his message out to hundreds of thousands of people via social media um, he's going to say things that are going to catch attention and and excite people both positively and negatively so you know i don't think the liberals can ignore him uh, i think they do have to kind of take him um take him head on and uh you know look for those opportunities there to to draw the contrast with him and highlight positions that he has are that are less appealing to the uh, the broader public or mistakes that he's made. I think, um, you know, he's going to say other things in the, down the road. I don't think, I don't think he's going to pivot to the center. So I think he's going to say things that are controversial. I think there'll be lots of opportunities that present themselves in the next couple of years to do that. Um, you know, in the short term, I think like the Bitcoin comments strike me as a, an example of something that was clearly poor judgment on his part. Um, if his whole credibility if his whole credibility is based on like i've got an answer for inflation and these guys don't understand inflation your solution for inflation is like cash in your life savings and put them in a uh, a risky online investment that lost half its value after two months if you'd followed my advice um you know that's not a great solution for inflation either and i think that undercuts his economic credentials so i think there'll be other things like that that will pop up over time and i think you know the liberals certainly have to pounce on those opportunities when they present themselves um because i don't think they can just wait for uh, the next election campaign, whenever that is, and unload the Oppo cannon at that point, um, because I think he's somebody who's uh, not going to be a, a wallflower for the next uh, couple of years. It's safe to say. So it's not exactly like with uh, O'Toole. It was more about you know some of the uh, it was the gun stuff that you mentioned, but also just that you know saying one thing and then doing a, uh, having a different position. With Sheer, it was more the social conservative stuff, and also he also had some authenticity issues by the end. Uh, <laughs> I can't imagine. I can't believe that that campaign ended on you know insurance brokers and um, American secret American. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, um, shows you that you know campaigns are really about the issues. But um, what would it be here? Is it because his position um, on those issues is different than Andrew Shear. Obviously, he's he's not uh, he's, he's not uh, anti-choice or anything like that. And with guns, we haven't really heard him talk much about it. But I assume that his position is not going to be all that different from Aaron O'Toole's. But 
can that be recycled or is it going to have to be something different? What What is his kind of thing that can stick to him? Yeah, I think that's what people are going to have to find. Um, you know, I think, you know, I, I, like Bitcoin's an example of something. I think, you know, he's certainly cozied up to the convoy crowd, um, maybe at a level that would not be, uh, would not make a lot of centrist voters that comfortable. Um, but again, there's also, you know, he's going to, like, I don't think he's going to, he's going to pivot. I don't think he's going to pivot to the middle. I think he's going to continue to make bold uh, statements and strong statements. And some of those will be popular and some of those will not. And I think it's a matter of kind of finding the ones that are not and, and pouncing on them. I think, you know, clearly ideologically, he is a true blue conservative that O'Toole, you know, said he was, and then kind of backtracked from a little bit down the road. Um, so I think, you know, he's going to he's gonna do things that people who are not true blue conservatives might find a little bit unpleasant um, at times. And I think, you know, it's just a matter of making sure that the government capitalizes on them um, when those things happen. You know, I think, again, in the short term, I think Bitcoin's a good issue to go on. Um, but I think there'll be other things that kind of present themselves uh, over time. And, you know, ultimately, it's probably going to, you know, in three years from now, we don't know what the issues are going to be. But I think, you know, there's a decent chance it could come down to a, you know, I'm going to cut government versus government can do these things. And that's largely what liberal conservative fights often kind of hinge on. And, you know, in a couple of years from now, if we're through this kind of high inflation period, it wouldn't surprise me if, if that kind of is, again, the access that it uh, that it boils down to. But um, I guess we'll I guess we'll wait and see. Is there something about Polyev's message that uh, should make the liberals worried? Some uh, Something that he's hitting on that the liberals aren't as effective at, at countering? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think, you know, Polyev, A, from a, just a, you know, tactics perspective, like has shown these long form videos seem to work. Like it seems to be an effective way for him to get his meta- message across and to um, connect with people. So I think he's, he's shown that is something that is uh, a new tool, uh, well, not a new tool, but a tool that he's using better than other politicians have. Um, and I think just from a message perspective, like he's done a good job at sort of diagnosing the anxieties of Canadians. Um, be it on, you know, prices in the diner going up or housing prices, you know, houses that you want becoming un- unaffordable, things like that that matter to people. And he's uh, he's giving them solutions. I mean, I, I personally think his solutions are kind of like pulled from thin air and not necessarily A to B, but he presents them in a way that makes them certainly seem very uh, believable. And I think um, gets a lot of traction uh, w- with that respect. And I think he is you know, obviously in a leadership race, he does, you know, you, you sort of drift off into the uh, the World Economic Forum conspiracies and things like that. But I do think he, by and large, has tried to focus a bit on the economic issues and issues like inflation. Um, you know, I mentioned some polling that we did at Polera recently, like uh, on that survey, two thirds of Canadians think inflation is going to get worse in the next couple of months. Two thirds think it's going to be at least a year till, till we're out of this high inflation period we're in. So, you know, heading into the fall, the public certainly still sees inflation as being a big concern and something they are worried about, even if even if the expert opinion is that maybe it has peaked. Um, and I think, you know, in that environment where people are very worried and think this is going to get worse, so they don't see the government offering solutions and he's coming along and offering a solution um, that at least, you know, sounds plausible, even if it isn't, um, you know, that is very potent uh, in politics. And uh, you give people someone to blame, you give them a solution. You know, that's what that's what you want to do in politics. And he's shown he can do that quite effectively. So I think he's uh, uh, if he's hitting on those themes in the fall, um, as opposed to some of the more fringe uh, conservative base uh, conspiracy theory sort of things, 
or or, uh, or or caressing wood in his videos or you know doing things like that if he's actually focusing on economic issues uh, I think uh, and inflation I think he's you know has the potential to certainly get a lot of traction uh, let's move on to uh, we'll just uh, finish with a quick chat on the Quebec election which is going to get started on Sunday officially um, first of all just to, I have a personal question uh, not personal but uh, I'm always curious about how that relationship between federal and provincial parties uh, what the relationship is. In some provinces, it's very, very close. Uh, you know, Ontario Liberals and federal Liberals, lots of the same kind of people. Same thing in Atlanta, Canada. Uh, but in Quebec, if you're a federal Liberal and you're part of the federal Liberal apparatus, like I'm not saying that you're just a person who votes Liberal, um, how do you view a provincial election in Quebec? Yeah, like I think, I think it's important just because the Premier of Quebec has such a high level of influence on the national stage um so even putting aside any kind of like partisan overlap there um you know who the premier of quebec is is going to have huge ramifications in terms of um just the issues that get pushed to the forefront that you're going to have to deal with um, that you're going to have to respond to um so i think it's something that the government will look at quite closely um in terms of paying attention to it um and you know there are going to be uh, kind of like at a human level, there's definitely going to be people who are working in the Trudeau government now who worked for the Quebec Liberals and, and know people there. And, you know, there's going to be a bit of overlap there. But I think I think the reality is, um, you know, this this is a, another election that looks a bit like a fait accompli at this time. So I don't know if necessarily um, there would be a lot of necessarily behind the scenes, even, you know, back and forth there. It's uh, it's more kind of, you know, paying attention, seeing what Legault is talking about. And, uh, you know, making sure that the issues that he's raising in the campaign, you know, those are the issues you're probably going to have to deal with down the road. And I think, uh, you know, everybody in Ottawa in the, in the current government is probably going to be paying a lot of attention to what Legault says on the campaign trail, because, uh, uh, you know, those are things you might have to deal with in a, in a couple of months. What are your thoughts on the campaign as, as a whole? Uh, you know, just in terms of the mood of Quebecers, uh, the, the strength of the, uh, the CAQ in the polls, you know, the Liberals having some have, having some trouble. Um what are you expecting? I know you, you just said it. it looks like Legault is, is, you know, probably going to end up winning it. But just in terms of the mood of, of Quebecers, what this election kind of signifies? Yeah, I mean, I think if you, if you look at the Ontario election, I mean, Ford benefited from you know that Liberal NDP vote being perfectly split. But I think he always had the risk that, you know, Liberal and NDP voters in Ontario are very similar and they could coalesce beside, behind one of those two parties. There was always that kind of threat to him there. Um, you know, based on the polls right now, like Legault is facing a, a four-way split of the opposition. So none of the parties have you know, maybe 20% most in some polls, but, you know, very little support. And, you know, it's hard to find four more different parties than like the Quebec Liberals and the PQ and Quebec Solidaire and the Quebec Conservatives. Like there's not a lot of Liberal PQ swing voters, I would I'd imagine, or, or Solidaire Conservative swing voters there. So it's even hard to kind of imagine a scenario where that opposition vote coalesces behind any one party in particular. Uh, and then, uh, you know, I think that obviously leaves Legault in a, a very enviable position heading into that campaign. Uh, and then on top of that, I think, you know, Quebecers are in a, a pretty good mood. We've actually got some polling coming out uh, at Polera uh, next week on um, 
how angry Canadians are about different topics. Uh, we call it the rage index. So it's, you know, how angry about government and the economy and stories in the news and things like that. And right now, you know, Quebecers and British Columbians are the least angry about their provincial government, which is obviously good if you're a government running for re-election. But just beyond that, too, like Quebecers just seem less worked up right now about their financial situation, about the changes that are happening in the country, the stories in the news. So you've got a, a electorate in Quebec that is relatively content compared to elsewhere in the country, where I think there is a lot of frustration kind of bubbling up below the surface and a lot of different files there. So if you're, you know, if you're a government running for your second mandate and people are pretty happy and the opposition is fractured in, in many different directions, like that adds up to a pretty good uh, electoral calculus, I think, for, uh, for the incumbent. But we'll finish on this. What do you think the results will mean for uh, Justin Trudeau? Uh, you know, f- probably means another four years of Francois Legault. Um, he doesn't have an election coming up. Uh, how will the results impact the, the, the federal government, do you think? Yeah, like I think it, uh, it really depends, I guess, how aggressive Legault wants to be on, on some of these, these issues uh, around identity, around language or, or Quebec's role in Canada. But I think, you know, you're looking ahead to the next couple of years. You've got, uh, you know, Legault in Quebec, likely. Um, I mean, Ford is certainly at times has butted heads with the federal government. Uh, He's worked with them, too, at times. So, I mean, we don't know what that relationship is going to look like, but there's certainly the potential for conflict there. Uh, You know, potentially Daniel Smith coming in in Alberta in the fall, talking about issues uh, like sovereignty and overturning the constitutional rule of law. Like, there's a lot of these provincial issues that certainly could be bubbling up to the surface in the coming months. And I think that's something that, um, you know, we may not be thinking about right now as issues that could be on your podcast in six months from now that everyone will be talking about because voters are tuned into them. Uh, we're all assuming it's going to be inflation, inflation, inflation. But, you know, in a couple months from now, some of these other issues around um, the Federation, um, you know, definitely could be things that are, are getting a lot of oxygen uh, with the public. And, uh, you know, dealing with angry premiers is something that uh, is the job of any prime minister. Um, and, uh, you know, he may have some uh, particularly feisty premiers looking to, uh, you know, to create issues uh, in the coming months. So I think that's something definitely to keep an eye on. All right. I lied. I have one question just more because you brought it up. Uh, I know you know Alberta very well. Do you think it'll be Daniel Smith? Look, I mean, the people I talk to think it'll be Daniel Smith and everybody's talking about her right now. Um there have been a lot of surprises in Alberta leadership races, though, in uh, in recent times. So I wouldn't say anything is a given uh, at the moment right now. But uh, certainly that seems to be the uh, the chatter on the ground out there is that uh, it's looking like uh, she is uh, certainly, um, you know, we talked about the conservative base federally, like the conservative base in Alberta is even more uh, extreme, I'd say, in a lot of these views. And, you know, certainly she has tapped into that uh, during this leadership uh, campaign. Yeah, so a sovereignist premier in Alberta rather than Quebec. That'll be the result of the, <laughs> of the voting that, that's that, going to take place yeah. in October. It looks like that could be the case. All right. Well, then that's going to be probably a pretty interesting thing that the government's going to have to tackle as well. So, uh, Dan, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast to uh, give us your thoughts on all of this. Well, I'm, I'm happy to come here. I mean, we didn't have a lengthy discussion on Justin Trudeau's haircut, which I was expecting we were going to get into. But uh, beyond that, I think we have covered all of the important issues of the day and the issues of federation. So uh, happy to uh, discuss them. All right. Thanks so much. Talk to you later. Thanks to Dan for that chat. 
With the Quebec election campaign officially getting underway on Sunday, I've got a lot planned for the campaign and a special announcement that you'll have to wait until next week to hear. Also, with the kickoff of the election, keep an eye on your inboxes and Twitter feeds for a special live stream I'm going to do on Monday. I'll set up the election and take some questions live. You can follow me on Twitter at at EricRenyTW, and you can sign up for notifications for free at theRit.ca. Also, early this week, I published the first in what will probably be a pretty long series of analyses of the federal riding redistributions. I took a look at Atlantic Canada and how the new boundaries could impact the next federal election. The full details are for paid subscribers of The Red only, but you can head over to the site to read a free and brief synopsis. And hopefully that'll whet your appetite for more. Okay, that'll be it for this week. Until next time, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.